Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you, uh, Molly, for that. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to after the service. And uh, as Dave just read, we're in this uh, study of the Gospel of Mark, this series we titled, Who Do You Say That I Am? We started it last week. Today is part two of that. And the reason we t- entitled the series, Who Do You Say That I Am, is there's this turning point in the Gospel of Mark. It happens in, in chapter 8, about halfway through. Mark is 16 chapters. Mark chapter 8, the middle point of the book, Jesus poses this question to his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And they come up with some answers. Hey, some people say this, some people say that. And, and he redirects the question from out there to right here. And he says, okay, but who do you say? That I am. And that was a significant question for them. It was really the first time they acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. But that's not just a significant question for them back then, it's a significant question for us right now. In fact, it's the most significant question of all of your life. Who do you say Jesus is? If you're a believer in Jesus, who do you say right now, this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Is your life reflecting that truth? If you're not a believer and you're in this room, we love it that you are here. If you consider yourself spiritual, you don't believe in God yet, you're not sure about this whole Christianity, this whole church thing, you need to answer this question as well. Who do you say Jesus is? And how is your life going to reflect that truth? It is the most significant question of all of our lives. And so we're discovering that together through this journey in the gospel of Mark. Last week we said it, uh, the gospel of Mark is a good one to go through. If you're new to the Bible, uh, new to the faith, or even been walking with Jesus for a long time but have some doubts, the Gospel of Mark is the first Gospel written 20 to 40 years after the life of Jesus. Some ancient manuscripts that we have in the world were written hundreds of years after the fact. This Gospel of Mark written 20 to 40 years right after the life of Jesus. People would have still been around to verify or deny these truths that that Mark writes. And so it's verifiable. It's the first gospel written. It's action-packed. You're going to see this in the whole of the gospel. It's not as much about Jesus' words, but it's about his, his deeds. It's about his power as a servant king, that he declares some things, but he demonstrates them way, way more. And we, we get this picture of Jesus as we all try to navigate, who do we say Jesus is from the Gospel of Mark. Mark wrote the Gospel with the help of one of the first disciples who was there for that question in Mark chapter 8, with the help of Peter. Who do you say that I am? Peter was faced with that question. Peter helps Mark write this Gospel. So it's a great place for us to look to say, who, does, who is Jesus and how do we live in light of that truth? If you didn't already, grab your Bible, Mark chapter 1. Our first point, if you take notes in the bulletin, is this. It's urgent calling. We're going to look at the call of Jesus today. And the first thing we're going to see, it's an urgent calling. Look at verse 14 with me. We see John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we talked about last week. He's the messenger paving the way for Jesus. Prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, 700 years prior, this messenger would come. That's John the Baptist. He's paving the way for Jesus. And in verse 14, we see a transition. Not a fun transition, to be honest, for John the Baptist. Right? He's arrested. We're going to get back to that in Mark chapter 6. But John the Baptist is arrested, and it says Jesus comes into Galilee. And there's a transition of people, but the message remains the same. Right, look at the verse. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. 
If you remember last week, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how the book of Mark starts. That's where John the Baptist is proclaiming. And even though there's this transition of people, the message remains the same. It's still about the gospel, the good news of God. And then look at verse 15. Verse 15, we get the first words of Jesus recorded in the gospel of Mark. And they're first in sequence, but also in importance. Jesus says, look at the verse, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Now, this is where Jesus is declaring something that he will demonstrate throughout the rest of this book. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Now, for you, those words maybe don't mean much or don't strike you as being radical, but they would have for them. You, You see, the kingdom of God, the kingdom being at hand specifically, is the idea that God's kingdom, his rule and reign, hallelujah, God reigns. We, we just sang that, this idea of God's kingdom, his rule and reign, his loving and justice reign, it comes to earth. His kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. And Jesus comes from proclaiming that, and he goes on to practice that throughout the rest of the book. You see, as we go through the book of Mark, you're going to need to know this. Because you're going to see a lot of miracles We see a lot of those in the Gospel of Mark. Lots of amazing things back to back to back. You're going to see a lot of healings back to back to back. Even people being dead and coming to life. You're going to see lots of those things preaching, spiritual warfare. You're going to see demons. It's going to get weird. You're going to see all those things. And if you're not careful, you could forget the beginning of the Gospel. This declaration that prompts the demonstration. That all of those things, all the preachings, all the miracles, all the healings, they fit under the banner of this rule, this reign, this kingdom of God. That's the point. This is the first of the words of Jesus, but it's also the first in importance. The people there would have known that. They would have been struck by this. And the reason he could say this, I mean, listen, if I just showed up to you today and said, hey, the kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. You'd go off running, right? You should. Like, because why, I don't have the authority to say that. The kingdom is at hand. How, how could you say that, Jesus? He's the king. He's here. How's the kingdom coming down? How's heaven meeting earth? It's not doing so with a system or an agenda or religion. It's doing so in the very person of Jesus Christ. So the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand because the king shows up. This has been a long-awaited proclamation. 700 years since the prophecy of Isaiah, even longer than that. If you look at the days of Abraham, God comes to Abraham and says, Hey, I'm going to make a blessing, make you a blessing. And through you, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all nations. He's talking about Jesus. That was in Genesis. So way more than 700 years, people are waiting for the kingdom to be at hand, for the time to be fulfilled. And Jesus says, it is. There's some urgency here with Jesus. When he says the time is fulfilled, he's not just talking about, hey, it's time, 3 o'clock. This is part of my schedule. It's time. No, it's a different word in the original language. It's this word kairos. 
kairos, for time. It literally means a strategic and decisive moment in all of history. That what Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Don't miss this. It's here. It's now. There's some urgency. Later in this text, we're going to see Jesus call the disciples, and we see twice this word, immediately. Immediately they left their nets. Immediately Jesus called. We're going to see that word immediately 40 plus times in the whole of the gospel of Mark. There's this theme of of urgency. Why? Because the king is here. His kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. There is urgency. And, And I think if we're honest, many of us, we don't have that same kind of urgency. We don't have that same kind of urgency of here, of now. The time is fulfilled. There's a strategic moment that we're a part of in history where we get to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and respond to it. The time is now. It's it's here. And Jesus is wanting to wake you up, even this morning, and give you that sense of urgency. Because most of us, if we're honest, we're hesitant, aren't we? I mean, maybe Jesus has been calling you to do something to love him, to put your faith in him, maybe for the first time, maybe if you are a follower of Jesus already, calling you to love the people around you, calling you to serve your spouse, calling you to to get baptized if you've never celebrated publicly what you've believed in privately and personally, to get baptized and, and, and to join a body of Christ and become a member of his church and not just attend, but instead participate. And maybe you've had some of those callings, those, those convictions in your life, but your response is later. Or maybe a little bit later. Like maybe I should find some authentic community. Maybe there is insanity and isolation. Maybe this life is too hard to do on my own, but I miss the rollout of community groups, so I'll just do it next semester. I didn't get to to be a part of that. I mean, once our schedule kind of settles down, once we get more into a a routine as a family, once I get these things organized, then I'll join a community group later. God's saying to you, you you are stuck in sin, sickness, and strife. You are in, in deep loneliness and depression. At the very least, you are just distracted and busy and self-centered. No, you need to move out to other people. And God's been calling you to do that. And you say, later, Maybe next semester. God's calling you to be baptized, to celebrate in obedience publicly before your family, your friends, your church, and say, I believe in Jesus. But your response is, I don't know if I want to get wet. I mean, October 28th, I mean, that's just in a couple weeks, and like, where's that going to be? And it's going to be back there, just so you know. To remove all excuses, it's going to be in this baptistry back here, and you are going to get wet, just so you know. But we'll have some clothes, and even if you don't bring them, we'll have some towels. And, and, but you think, well, maybe I should do that, but maybe, I don't know, I'm going to have to get in front of people. And I don't know, if I really cleaned up my act, am I really ready for this thing? And maybe later, and God is wanting to say to you right now, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. What are you waiting for? The time is here. It's now, not later. Listen, I, I, my fear for a lot of us as Christians I know not all of us in this room are Christians, but my fear for a lot of us, even as Christians, is that we we know Jesus. He is king. The kingdom is at hand. But we we come into this room, we, we sit and we stand and we go through the motions and we leave unmoved. 
We leave unchanged. We leave without an urgency. And maybe we don't go on in our weeks to do some horrific sins. And maybe we don't go on in our weeks to to really hurt and damage other people and do grievous acts in our society. Maybe we don't go on to do horrible things, but maybe we're just nice, distracted, passive, paralyzed, nominal, casual Christians. That's my fear for many of us. And listen, Jesus to the disciples, to the crowds that would follow him, Jesus to you this morning, that's why you're here, is saying not later, not distract, not passive, not paralysis, get up and move. The time is here, it's now. Why? Because the king is here. Because the king is is coming for you, not just these disciples. And so Jesus right away is waking us up. He doesn't roll into this and transition in an easy way. You notice this? These are the first words Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is here. Then he says, repent and believe. Now, I'm a preacher. I've studied preaching. I like to preach. I read books about preaching. Sermon 101 is not this. (laughs) Like Sermon 101, just so you know, behind the scenes is, you know, start out with an introduction. Like, let people get to know you a little bit. Like, share a little bit about yourself. Let people know you're just like them. You're a pastor, but you're a person too, right? If, if you have something funny, I mean, that kind of helps break the ice, right? Even better. And once you've kind of rolled out your introduction, done a few of those things, just kind of ease your way into the text. Give some background. Give some, some context, Right? Lay out some of the bigger picture of Scripture and then and work your way through the text and then eventually get to a call to action and invite people to step forward and do something in response to the proclamation of God's Word. That's Sermon 101. That's Preaching 101. What I love about Jesus is he blows all of that up, right? Sermon 101, I'm the Son of God. I'm Jesus, I am the word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so he rolls in and says the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. He gets right to the point. Again, this is an urgent calling. If you you read these words when you read your Bible and you think of Jesus as just inviting the kids to come to him and cuddle around him in a circle, that's not this moment for Jesus. This is the powerful proclamation of a king who's getting right to the point, who's wanting to wake you up, even this morning. It's an urgent call. And what does he call us to do? He calls us to believe and repent. Believe and repent. That belief, that's faith, it includes two primary components. That it includes knowledge and it includes reliance. That if we separate those two things out, we don't have belief. Do you know this? Some people think Christians, it's just a crutch. I mean, you just got to believe in something, just kind of blind faith. You're just grabbing a hold of something. And and no, belief inherent in its nature in Scripture is knowledge. It's looking at Scripture. It's knowing who Jesus is. It's looking at a gospel like Mark and knowing 
It was written 20 to 40 years after the life of Jesus. It was the first gospel. It was written by Mark, who was probably a a kid running around the house where the upper room was, where Jesus was gathering the disciples to pray, and he got a front row seat, an eyewitness account to all that Jesus was doing. It's knowing that. It's knowing that Mark wrote this with the help of Peter, who was one of the early disciples, who was one of the 12 who followed Jesus. It's, It's knowing that. Listen, if you're here today and maybe you haven't come to church because you just think, well, it's blind faith, they they threw their mind out the window. No, belief is is knowledge. It's not blind faith. But it's not just knowledge. It's also reliance. It's the old chair illustration that you can know a lot about a chair, right? You can know how it's bolted together. You can know if it's plastic or wood. You can know it has four legs, right? You need to know that. It's good to know that. But at some point, what do you have to do? You have to sit down in the chair, right? You have to rely upon the chair to do what it was made to do. And so believe. The time is here. The time is now. There's an urgency. What do you need to do? You need to believe. You need to know some things about Jesus. And then you need to rely upon him in response to what you know. He says believe. Then he says repent. Repentance is a changing in thinking and direction. It's a changing. You're going one way, one direction, one way of thought, and you switch, and you do a 180, and you change your thinking, and you change your direction. Repentance, again, not Sermon 101 by Jesus. He wouldn't have taught the class on preaching in this moment because repentance is a word we don't really like to talk about because it involves changing Things about our lives, changing our direction. And, and here's a newsflash for you. We don't like to change. Right? This week I was thinking about it because we have bolt pickup at our house. Any of you guys live in these neighborhoods? You got, you got bolt pickup at your house. That means this, college students, they'll come and pick up all the stuff you don't want. And as a college student, when you don't have anything... That's not that good news. But when you get a family and kids and and time goes by, you start to pile up a lot of junk, right? And bulk pickup becomes the gospel, the good news of God, right? You're like, bulk pickup's coming. Like our neighborhood, spread the word. Bulk pickup, have you heard about bulk pickup? And we've experienced this resistance, this fear of change, even with bulk pickup. Why? Because we start looking at things in our house. We're like, maybe we should throw out this. Maybe we should get rid of this. Yeah, we've been talking about that for a long time. Maybe we should get, and, and you know what, what's crazy is what happens is just when you're about to take it out to the street, your heart stands still for a little bit. Your breath, it just stops for a moment, and you're like, but what if, right? But what if I need this? What will I do without this? What will I find to replace this? And it's like, it's, for us, this is just true testimonial. For us, it's like this partial fence that's in our storage shed. And it's like, what are we going to do without that? Like, what if we need that partial fence one day? I mean, maybe not for, to use functionally around our house, but maybe like go hipster style and bring it in our house and put it up on a wall and make it part of our decor. I mean, and we've never thought about that before except when we grab the fence to take it outside for a bulk pickup. Right? There's a fear. There's a resistance to change in anything in life. We're like, what am I going to lose? Will it be replaced? 
Will it work out? And there's a, there's a fear of like, I know I have some things in my life. I know I have some, some sin in my life, some anger in my life, some greed in my life, some lust in my life, some addiction in my life, some escape that's unhealthy in my life, and some distorted relationships in my life, and, and some bitterness in my life. And, and we, we go and we think, I need to get rid of that. I get every Sunday at church, you're like, that, I need to, I need to get rid of that. Like if there was just a bulk pickup, I, I would get rid of that. And then that day comes where Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, confess that, lay that down, repent of that, change your direction, go here, let go of that, grab a hold of me. And that moment where, where Jesus calls you to do that and you go to do it and it's almost like there's a, re- a resistance, a fear to change. What, what, what if I... If I give this bitterness up, if I put it out by the street and it gets picked up, what's going to replace that? I mean, that, that friendship that went the wrong way, that, that divorce, I mean, if I just give this bitterness up, I mean, that's kind of what keeps me hanging on to him. I mean, I was wrong. Do you not understand my situation? I'm bitter. And that kind of gives me some comfort. If I let that go, what's going to replace it? We have this, this fear of change, this resistance to change, even, listen, even with things that we know are destroying us. Because we're just wondering, if I give this up, will I get something better? You need to know, with maybe with a partial fence, you might not get another one. You might not have a cool thing to put on your wall 10 years from now, hypothetically. If you, if you give up some other things, maybe... Yeah, I don't know if that change is going to turn out for the better. You didn't know what Jesus Christ, the king, the loving and just king who's bringing heaven to earth, that anything you give up, if you get him, it will be worth it. I've been saying this a lot because it keeps coming up just in in the scriptures in my life is the Puritans. Back in the day, they used to say this, like, how do you dislodge a beautiful thing from the heart? We just rip it out. Our sin is is beautiful to us in that moment. That lust, that greed, that addiction, that escape, it's beautiful to us in the moment. How how do you dislodge that from the heart? Do Do you just say, get out of there? No, the Puritans would say, how do you dislodge it from the heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. That when you repent, when you change direction from you, from your sin, and you look to Jesus and you make him your direction, it's never a lose-lose situation. It's always a win-win. So Jesus is calling us to believe. This is urgent. The time is here. The time is now. Believe. Repent. Let go of these things. Grab a hold of me. We can't avoid them. We have to address them. We have to address our sin. Even when we're fearful, we have to address it. When we repent, that's what we do. We address it not only in an emotional way, not only in our actions, but comprehensively. We address it with our head, heart, and hands. We acknowledge our sin with our head. We acknowledge it. 
We, we admit that it's there. We call it by name. We specify the sin. We don't just say, hey, I know it can be a little bit greedy sometimes. We talk specifically about how we know we're greedy. We acknowledge our sin, as painful as that is. And then with our heart, we, we grieve our sin. I think, I think many of us, the, the misconception about repentance is we think, well, I'm going to repent one day. Like I'm going to officially change direction one day. But it's when I get my act together. It's when I clean up everything. It's when I stop sinning. No, no, no. Don't get it confused. Repentance is an acknowledgement of sin, and then it's a grieving of sin. It doesn't mean you no longer sin. It means you're no longer at peace with your sin. You can't just willfully go on sinning, doing those things over and over, getting back into that cycle of sin that you do want to hang on to, that you are fearful of letting go to. It means you no longer can do that and just be okay with it. Right? It's a comprehensive repentance of acknowledging our sin, grieving our sin. We're no longer at peace with it and then develop, developing a plan of action to deal with our sin. That is repentance. That is the turning that God is, is calling us to in this moment. We see an example of it, a great example in the story of the prodigal son in the Gospels. Jesus tells this story of the prodigal son. It's the youngest son who, who gives up all his inheritance and basically tells his dad to shove it and then runs off and tries to go his own way, his own direction, his own way of thinking. And if you know the story of the prodigal son, just like in all of our lives, trying to hang on to our sin, that doesn't work out, right? At some point in the story of the prodigal son, it says this, that when, when the prodigal son came to himself, when he came to his senses, he rises, and then he starts developing a plan, and he mourns, and he confesses to his father his sin. You see this head, heart, and hands. And I think for many of us, we have a fear of change and a fear of repentance because we're afraid to get to that moment where we acknowledge our sin, we grieve our sin, we get a plan of action to deal with our sin just like the prodigal son did. And we, we, we don't do that. We have a fear of doing that because we believe in that moment there's going to be judgment, there's going to be shame. Listen, the irony in that is if you never come to that place of repenting, there is judgment and there is shame, and that's all there is. But what we see in the prodigal son is that he, as he gets the courage to address his sin, to acknowledge it, to grieve it, and to fight it, what happens? Does he get judged? Does he get shamed? No, he gets a ring. He gets a, a robe. He gets the fattened calf. Right? We see it in the story of the prodigal son. What happens? His father, who is a long way off, has compassion on his son. He runs to his son. He embraces his son. He says, get the ring. Get the fattened calf. Let's throw a party. Get the best robe. And many of us, we have a fear of repentance, of acknowledging, of grieving, of planning to fight our sin because we think, well, in the midst of that, there's going to be a lot of judgment and shame. And what we see in the story of the prodigal son is it couldn't be more of the opposite. What's waiting for you at the other side of turning, of changing directions, is the embrace of the father, is the best robe, the ring, a celebration when one person turns from their sin and turns to God. What are you waiting for? There's a sense of urgency. And Jesus' call to us, believe, repent. 
Maybe God's calling you to do that. We're not through with the sermon yet, but maybe just God is calling you to do that right now. Don't wait. The time is here. The time is now. The king is here. He's among us, among you right now. There is some sin that's crippling to you, and I just feel like in this moment, maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to bow your head, stop listening to me, start talking to Jesus, and pray and confess, acknowledge, grieve your sin, and start thinking about, start writing in your notes, how am I going to fight this? Don't wait. Don't wait till the end of the sermon to do that. Why? Because there's a heavenly father waiting to embrace you and run to you and have compassion on you right now. Believe that and respond. There's an urgent call to do so. Our second point, it's not just an urgent calling, it's a lifelong commitment. We see this in verse 16 through 20. You see Jesus, he starts calling people. Starts calling people specifically. Hey, the time is here. The kingdom is, is here Believe and repent, that's not just some broad, vague call. That's personal to people like Simon, Andrew, James, John, the first of the disciples, the first four. I want you to notice just three things about that call. It's a personal call. He calls them by name. They have faces. They have stories. They have families. Sometimes we, we rag on the disciples, like, man, they didn't know anything. I mean, they were just fishermen. Most scholars believe they're not just fishermen, like they got your, your little uh, Zebco. Any fishermen in here? Zebco? Okay, all right, that's just me from Texas. But you got your little fishing rod, poor disciples, they got their little fishing rod trying to catch lunch, right? Like silly fishermen. No. These were fishermen, part of an industry of fishermen, part of an enterprise. This was their business, working together, catching large amounts of fish. This is the Sea of Galilee, this primary harbor for this to take place. These are personal people with, with names, with faces, with stories, with careers, things that they would have to leave behind, nets that they would leave behind. At one moment, a father they would leave behind, verse 20. It says they left their father in the boat. Just said, Dad, you got this. Right? He's in the boat. And they're like, Dad, we're going to follow Jesus. These are real people. I know it's sometimes hard to get in Scripture and think, well, they didn't, they didn't have anything. They didn't have any money. They didn't have careers. I mean, they were just fishermen. These are real people with real faces, with real stories, with real families. The second thing. It's not just personal, it's communal. We see in the scripture, look at it with me, it says, they went. It says he's going to make them fishers of men. That Jesus is saying, I want you to be with people. Like, this isn't just James. It's not just John. It's Simon, Andrew, James, and John. He goes on to call eight more guys. You're going to be with people people. It's a personal call, but it's also a communal call. You're going to be with people, and it's also going to be two people. What are they going to do, Jesus? Become fishers of men. Go love people. Go be with people. If you've been exploring Christianity, or even if sometimes you get confused and think this is a religion, this is a system, this is an agenda, it's not. It's about people. It's personal. It's communal. The last thing is it's transformational. I love this. Jesus doesn't say Look at the text with me. He doesn't say, since you have become, follow me. No, he says, I will make you become. That's what it says. I will make you become fishers of men. Are they now? No. No. He'll make them become that. 
This is an urgent call, but it's also a lifetime commitment. It's a lifelong commitment. It's something that as you believe and repent and then you commit to follow, that Jesus takes you where you could not go without him. And see, sometimes we get this confused in our life. We, we think, again, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to get things figured out. And then I will follow Jesus. And then I will get baptized. Then I will sign up for the membership class. But let me get some things figured out first, Tim. It's not the way Jesus works. Jesus goes to them and says, follow me. I'm going to make you become something. We're going to go on a lifelong journey, a process where I'm going to take who you are now and make you into who, you are, who I need you to be. This is radical in that culture. The most often in that culture, you had rabbis. Jesus was considered a rabbi, like a teacher. And the, usually the way it worked in that culture, in Jewish culture, was a student would go up to a rabbi and say, hey, can I, can I follow you? Can I be a part of your crew? And they would show them their resume. And they would maybe give some recommendations. And they would talk about their religion. That's the culture that Jesus steps into. And he flips it on its side. And instead of people having to pursue Jesus, Jesus flips it on its side and he says, I'm going to pursue you. And I don't need your resume. I got my own. And, and I don't need your recommendations. Like, I'm coming after you, James, John, Simon, Andrew, real people with real faces and real stories and real families. Hey, come follow me. Well, Jesus, we're not ready yet. I mean, we don't even know you yet. Where are we going, Jesus? What are we going to do on that journey, Jesus? I don't know if I have my life cleaned up yet, Jesus. And Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men. Some of you this morning are reluctant to follow Jesus fully in your life because you think, Tim, I don't know enough. I mean, I still got some things in my life that I don't like. I mean, Tim, I'm not that good with people. Sometimes I don't like them. Like, I'm introverted. I mean, Tim, I don't know. Like, follow Jesus. Come to church on Sundays. Be in a community group. Help other people follow Jesus. Like, I don't know if I can do that. And Jesus is saying to you, I know you're not there yet. I will make you become fishers of men. It's a process. It's a lifelong commitment. Sometimes in the church, we mess this up and we just say, hey, pray a prayer. It's all on you right now in this moment. Should you pray a prayer? Should you believe and repent? Yes. Should you also acknowledge that following Jesus is a lifelong commitment? When we do baptism on the 28th of October, we get in that tank. We're going to ask people before they go under celebrating the death of Jesus and coming out and celebrating the life of Jesus, we're going to ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin and rose for your sin? And they'll say, yes. And then we're going to ask, do you commit to follow him all the days of your life? And God will take that person who is not where they need to be, and he will make them who, in, into who he wants them to become. That's the Christian life. That's the urgent call. It's a lifelong commitment. God initiates. God flips the culture on its side. He pursues. He comes after you. That's what he did for the disciples. But make no mistake about it. God initiates. We respond. 
God initiates. That's the beauty of the gospel. He's coming to get you, not waiting for you to work your way to him. He's coming after you. That's the beauty of the gospel. But you do respond. There's an urgency to respond. Notice the disciples, they left some nets. They left their dad in the boat by himself with some servants. They left their family behind. They left their career behind to follow Jesus. They responded. God calls. You move. God initiates. You respond. How is God calling you to respond this morning? I think for a lot of us, how we work in life is we're all or nothing. Right? If we just think about it so simply as follow Jesus, follow me, Tim. Where, how, how's it going to affect my career, my relationships, my friendships, my finances, my sin? Can I get some more details? Jesus doesn't fill in the blanks. He just says, follow me. And we're just all or nothing people, and we're thinking, can I get some more information? Right? If I'm going to work out, anybody relate to this? If I'm going to work out, i got to do 30 minutes of cardio, then 30 minutes of weight, then, get the, then 30 minutes of weights, then get the protein shake afterwards. And Tim, if I can't do that holistic workout and then some yoga right beforehand to get my body limbered, then I won't do anything. Anybody can say amen to that? Okay, just me. That's the way I work out. It's like all or nothing. Well, you could just lift a few weights. You could go on a walk for 10 minutes. No, I think I'll just eat this cheeseburger. Right, we're kind of all or nothing. Like, I need all the details, Jesus. I can't just step in one direction and I'm going to follow you and figure the rest out over the course of my life. And again, that passivity, that paralysis will be the reason many of us miss out on the kingdom that's here, that's now. It's because we won't just take one step. I think about a guy I know uh, in Texas. His name's David Nance, and he, he's been a supporter of our church, and um, he's an interesting guy. Uh, about a year into the life of our church, we, we have to rely upon support as a new church. We're four years old, and this guy, David Nance from Amarillo, Texas, who I didn't know prior to this story. It's a crazy story. Reaches out and says, hey, I saw the story of how you guys are starting this church, and I want to be a part of that. How can I be a part of that? Long story to share, but the essentials are that led to his church, First Baptist Amarillo, sending missions teams the last two years over their spring break of about 80 people coming here to help us love, live, and lead other people to Jesus in the city of Phoenix. You know, I don't think David thought about all the details, thought about all the implications, thought, I mean, honestly, is this guy crazy, Pastor Tim? I don't know this guy. I mean, what if we go all the way out there to Phoenix from Amarillo, Texas, and it's really hot, and our high school students don't want to do anything? That happened a couple times, right? He didn't get the whole story. He didn't get the whole picture, but he just said, I'm going to follow. God's put this on my heart. I'm going to do something. He did that before. He told me a story about going to Haiti on a mission trip. He met a family, and then that sparked a relationship, and he would go back and back and back and provide for this family. And he just said, I'm going to follow Jesus. And some of you are probably thinking, well, David's probably like a millionaire, right? He could just do that. He's that kind of person. I mean, I know people like that in my life. No, David Nance in Amarillo, Texas, is a drywall contractor. I don't know how he does it, but I know he took a step 
to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And with that came relationships, life change in places like Phoenix and Haiti and all across the world because a drywall contractor would step in and say, I'm going to follow you. I know it's not going to all be picture perfect. It's not this morning, right? I know some of you aren't going to have this moment where, where Jesus audibly says, hey, come follow me. Put down your career. This is what it's going to be like. Follow me. And some of us, we're waiting on that, aren't we? We're like, well, Tim, if, if I had what the disciples had, I mean, if Jesus in person came along and said, clearly, decisively, precisely follow me, like, I would be available. Jesus, the Son of God, like, I'd probably do that. Listen, spoiler alert, that's what he's doing right now. That's what he's doing right now. You're in church on a Sunday morning. October 14th, 2018, looking at a passage in Scripture where the primary crux of the passage is what? Follow me. That God is calling you, and he's doing so through his word and through me right now. How do you need to respond? How do you need to just step forward and say, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm going to step forward. I'm going to step forward to love, to serve, to give, to join the church, to get baptized, to do what God's been calling me to do, to let go of my sin, to grab hold of him. How do you need to respond? It's an urgent call. It's a lifelong commitment. God is gracious. He who began a good work will complete it in you. Will you start the good work? Will you join the good work? He will complete it. He is gracious and good to do so. Will we respond? We're going to close in prayer. I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray together. I, I realized this morning that some of us, our first response may be to cross over the line of faith and put our trust in Jesus and to say to Jesus, Jesus, I repent. I believe you are God. You died for me. You rose for me. I want to follow you. I realize for some of us, that's, that's our, our step. That's that one step we need to take. That if we're honest, maybe we've heard about Jesus, like we heard about a chair, we, we know how it works kind of intellectually. We come to church, we do the thing, but we, we haven't been moved to respond, to sit down, to rely upon Jesus in our lives. And, and I would submit to you that if you haven't done that, you don't know Jesus. And this morning, your, your urgent call, the time is here, it's now, is just to say, Jesus, I believe in you. I repent of my sin. I want to follow you. And to step forward. Jesus will change your life. You'll never be the same if you do that. It'll be over the course of your life, but he will begin to change your life. This morning, if that's you, would you just take this moment right now to put your trust in Jesus, to repent of your sin, to let it go, to overcome that fear and cross over into faith. Jesus is calling you. By name, in your story, there's no surprises. He knows what he's getting with you. Will you respond? God, I just want to pray for these men and women. I want to pray for us as a church, God, that we would not settle for passivity or paralysis in our Christian faith. We would get up and we would move 
and we would watch you move in us and through us and around us in amazing ways. Because the king is here. The king is among us even now. So God, I pray that you would prompt us to move, to love, to serve, to give, to partner, to play a part and not just sit on the sidelines. God, help us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray for your help. Amen.